Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Welcome, dear listeners, to the Dwarf Cast Book Club from Ganymede and Titan. This is the series of podcasts where we reread, discuss and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels part by part, and today it's the turn of Better Than Life, part two, She Rides. With me today, as always, are Jonathan Capps. Hello. Danny Stevenson. Hello. And me, Ian Symes, along with our big list of comments from our loyal listeners slash readers. Uh, they've been reading along with us and commenting over at www.ganymede.tv. Now, as per, we're assuming you're familiar with uh, the book and you've reread it before you listen, uh, and that will improve your chances of knowing what the fuck we're talking about. Um, we'll try not to skip ahead too much uh, when we discuss uh, the novel, although that may be difficult for reasons that we'll point out later. However, if you can't remember what happened last time, here's a little recap. The crew are still trapped in Better Than Life. Ahead of his second wedding to an avatar of his mother, Rimmer learns his fortune has been wiped out by a stock market crash. His brother Frank turns up with Rimmer's ex-wife Juanita. The pair reconcile and elope, pursued by bailiffs from his former company, who repossess his body. Rimmer's disembodied mind is imprisoned alongside three hardened criminals. They escape, but in the confusion Rimmer's mind ends up in the body of a prostitute called Trixie Labouche. He tries to leave the game but can't, and realises the crew all have to exit together for some reason. He sets off in a juggernaut to find Lister, accidentally destroying Bedford Falls in the process. They collect Cat and Crichton and leave the game. Meanwhile, Holly has repaired Talkie Toaster and increased his IQ to 12,368 at the cost of reducing his lifespan to under 3 minutes. Then after a piece of dropped toast lands marmalade side up 20 times in a row, Lister realises they're still in the game, at which point the game's creator Dennis McBean turns up to congratulate them on winning and they finally leave for real. And so that's pretty much where we pick up in the uh, second part of the book, which is a lot more straightforward and linear than the first. Yeah. Uh, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> help us. Very tiny, t- tiny section. <laughs> it is a tiny section. Uh, so tiny, in fact, that one can easily accidentally read more than they intend to, can't they, Capsi? <laughs> well, when you're pirating the audiobook on YouTube and Chris Barry doesn't tell you when part three starts, then you could accidentally read up to cockroaches. But never mind. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, spoilers. There's cockroaches involved now. Oh, fuck. But yeah, it is. It is after, after we talked a lot about in the last one about how the non-linear format messed with our young minds when we first read it, uh, this is a lot more comfortable of a read. Yeah, it's like a, a sigh of relief, really. Yeah. Uh, I suppose it's interesting that in the intro to the book it says that time is a character in this novel. Uh, and in the first part it was the way they were telling the novel um, was the thing that was affected by that. Uh, this time around time starts to become more relevant to the plot uh, towards the end of this part. And so I guess it makes sense that the structure of the novel itself needs to be more straightforward to in order to just not compound the confusion yeah. for the reader. I wonder what they'll do with time next. <laughs> <laughs> but no, instead it, it starts off quite straightforwardly with um Lister and Cat like on the verge of death with rotting flesh jutting from their bones, yeah. <laughs> whatever the line is. Some classic I'll I'll say Grant Naylor body horror here, because we maybe overstate the fact that Rob is the the psychopath. <laughs> psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> um but 
probes slurping out of skulls, like the description of starvation, basically, mm. is really horrible. <laughs> I mean, well, it... I'd written, I'd written in my notes Rob Grant depictions of the emaciated Listerine cat, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm prepared to uh, put my money on it. Well, we should ask next 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 quarantine is someone. <laughs> yeah. like, is, are, are you the sick one? <laughs> <laughs> But I remember the, the the bit when when Lister can't even bring himself to look at the cat like he, he really wants to. He do. knows he, he knows how much how terrible he looks. And he's, he he yeah. daren't look over, and they do actually. It seems like we actually have a confirmation that actually they were in better than life for two years, mm. like properly, like actual right. actual two years in real time. So yeah, that's horrific. If that's what yeah. you know, if, if Crichton's been trying to keep them alive for two years like that. That's insane. So Crichton can't have been in very long because as soon as Crichton goes in, then their source of food has gone, unless they somehow, you know, like instinctively find like something to eat. Yeah, or he puts an IV drip in him or something. Or maybe yeah, yeah, like bare minimum sort of a thing. It's only because of Crichton staying out for that long that they're not just literally dead. Literally dead. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. So what? One of the most horrifying things about this is is that. Lister immediately knows not to look at the cat. It's like you can just tell that like actual reality has just hit him like a truck, and he suddenly yeah. understands everything that the consequences of of everything that he's just enjoyed or has just experienced for the last two years. He knows exactly what the situation is going to be, and he know you know he knows like reality has just fucked him. <laughs> and Lister, he says as well that Lister is as weak as a day old giraffe. And I wonder whether or not that giraffe has been spit roasted. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a weird thing that because it's like a day old giraffe is kind of already on its feet and doing things at this point. I was going to say a day old giraffe is certainly more impressive than a, a day old cat. A day old cat can't even see things. Or human. Humans are shit at being young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking useless. What is it about being a giraffe that means it's really imperative that you stand... I mean, I guess being hunted constantly. It's just, yeah, it's the fact they're a prey animal, yeah. right? It's the same yeah. as deer, it's the same as, you know... Just Yeah, you've got... You've got you've also, their, they, in, their instinct is to be shit scared all the time, which is just the cruelest fucking thing ever. <laughs> it's a, bit also, like it's my a dog. marketing thing, I think, because their USP is being really tall. Oh, and right, so yeah, they, so it's like, come on, do your job. They wouldn't They wouldn't get the funding if they were... <laughs> <laughs> they stayed low There's to the a ground. lot of external pressure... <laughs> and them to just, just repeat their pressure. old, their old, um, their old successes, you know, and they, they're trying to branch out, <laughs> move on. But then that's what the audience wants, you know. Yeah, yeah, you got to give bombs on. It becomes a convention at that seats. point, and it just becomes expected. Anyway, well, we've derailed pretty quickly. <laughs> What's interesting here as well is that it's, it's a situation where things are so bad that not even Rimmer can be a cunt about it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Rimmer completely is like incredibly. Stoic and, and yeah, and just not like wanting... yeah, we need to help them. Yeah, yeah. he does. He, he, you know, this is the time when Rimmer would be wanting to sort of gloat, but even in this, it's just like yeah, this is just <laughs> not good. The tone would be a lot different if he just that. And then Rimmer said, "Oh dear, Listy, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a lot of weight, is it?" <laughs> <laughs> they kind of Crichton and Rimmer don't even say it out loud to each other. They just have like have an understanding between them of like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. yeah. And then Crichton goes off uh, to get help, and the I like the bit where the scutters like ignore him. Their scutters are busy playing cards, and they can't even be bothered to listen to um, Crichton because that doesn't happen to Crichton in the TV series. Yeah. Like Crichton's quite quite in tune with the scutters and all the other machines, 
and like even in the most recent series that was explored now I think about it with Macocracy. Oh yeah. But yeah, it happens to Rimmer a lot in the early in the early days where they've transposed that over to Crichton. Yeah, not the first time that they do that. Um in this part of the book. Ooh. I mean, it is basically the next bit, but it's the oh, the next bit. Yeah, yeah. Vimmer is the person to discover uh, to to think. Well, you know, the engines are off, and and yeah. can you hear anything? Well, neither can I. And but I think I've jumped ahead a little bit there. Uh, only only a tiny bit. It is still in this chapter. You can tell that this is an early draft of White Hole rather than the other way around. This is the stuff, in case anyone doesn't know, that a lot of it is the same as the episode White Hole, but in a rare case for the books, I think possibly a unique case, it was in the novels first before it was in yeah. on the TV. It's, it's not an adaptation. It's actually like an early version of White Hole. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, they swap the dialogue around, and so in this version, it's Crichton and Rimmer, and it's it also, as several of the comments, both Dave and International Debris pointed out in the comments, that they, it doesn't have the line there are no sounds to hear and it's therefore it's not that funny <laughs> no it's also the wrong way around i think um yeah i actually can't remember someone said that it works better this way around but vimmer being the insightful one and Crichton being a bit dim because you'd think Crichton would immediately i mean there's even a joke in that section about Crichton having exceptionally good hearing he would realize as soon as there's no engine noise so like yeah Rimmer realizing it, and then Crichton thinking, "Oh, you know, Crichton being the thick one just doesn't really fly." I don't think because you have to be thick in order to not get the meaning. So yeah, sorry. The comment was from Clem, who said that I definitely prefer the novel version of the realization that the engines are dead. Crichton thinking Rimmer's gone insane is funnier that way around. Uh, Rimmer's head jabbed forward. Neither can I. He said and um, smiled enigmatically. I can imagine Chris doing that perfectly. It's definitely funny to imagine Chris doing that, but um, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's funnier this way around. Um, I think it's a, it's a bit of a mismatch. Yeah, it's always a thing in the novels where the thing that you're most familiar with <laughs> is always going to be the thing. You know, it feels weird the other way around. You're very true. Uh, yeah. You've got to get over the fact that you're so familiar with the TV version, and like I think all four of us really like White Hole as an episode. In Capsi, named you named a fan site after it, Danny. You recreated a scene of it in Lego. Yep. Yeah. In the <laughs> in the mid two thousands, it's always top five uh, for me or top ten. Yeah. Yeah. That big time. Um, so, for example, in the next chapter, there's a whole a conversation that's transposed over, um, and it's it's just impossible not to hear Hattie. Um, it's the bit where. Um, Holly gets turned back on for the first time and uh, there's the inhibitor and yeah. wants to be switched back off it's it's still Norman in the books, it's still male pronouns and everything but it's just, I just can't not hear Hattie and that's because it's one of Hattie's greatest moments in the show like, yeah. in fact the whole episode really is one of her high, high points but just like pretty much everything she does in that episode is hilarious yeah. um, so that that makes it even harder to like separate it out <laughs> Uh, but you can see in this in this you know we we have discussed why didn't they swap Holly over to to match the TV show or like you know talking about that and you can kind of see here because if they came out better than life and 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 Holly was um, was female, then yeah. it's a whole other thing that needs to be addressed and it's yeah. going to be less efficient, I guess. And there's already a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because. <laughs> Lister and Kat's recovery, uh, they get put into uh, what are referred to as medi-suits, uh, which is some sort of futuristic invention to just make them better really quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, in few, you can imagine them like, you know, lots of 
I don't know, electricity being used to kind of rebind things and vitamins being injected through the skin and stuff. You can yeah. that's kind of how I imagine it. It sounds really comfy. I'd love, I'd, I'd like to do that. Just be, just be, you know, ill and then have to be in like some sort of regenerative suit and you basically have to just, you know, watch TV all day as you get better. Sounds I'd like rather that. just be well than be ill. Well, and have you to know get what? <laughs> if I'm gonna be ill. Then you know that's how I'd do it. But just getting a sleeping bag. Actually, yeah, that's true. It's like slankets, isn't it? These are basically like futuristic slankets. Yeah, the slankets that make you recover from years of starvation yeah. and malnutrition, well, rather, rather than slankets that make you recover from a bottle of vodka the night before. <laughs> <laughs> so Rimmer and and Crichton don't know anything about the IQ experiment because they've been in better life while all this stuff kicked in and then it's like all of a sudden it just goes from zero to a hundred that's such a cool detail as well holly holly is just being turned off and then they find out that something is heading towards them as fast as as fast as anything well what what confuses me and i don't know whether this is something anyone else has picked up on but how can the ship stop it it's more i think it's relative it's stopped in that it's not pushing itself forward anymore but it will still be moving through space but it does say like that the ship has never stopped before. Well, the engines have never stopped before. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so the so spinning up the engines is, is a huge thing because it's it was built in orbit and it was always meant to have this perpetual yeah. Again, something that's like something that's not really been examined before is like what mm. happens when a ship like a ship that's not designed to stop stops. What happens? Yeah. yeah, and I really like the intricacies where they go into detail about how it all works and like it's you know, it's quite over my head. But I can imagine like I'm glad I'm glad to know that there is a process that's been thought about, like how do you start up Red Dwarf? Mm. Yeah. And it's this complicated system of pistons and everything else. Oh, it's brilliant. It's like a star world building in um yeah. in the books. It's the sort of thing that it that they're great at and like just thinking about the intricacies like that is um you know no stone unturned yeah it is is something how do you turn on the engines of red dwarf well let's spend a page and a half explaining exactly how there's definite real knowledge underpinning what they're what they're doing here obviously like you know i i'm no engineer but it sounds sounds right to me yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) oh it's not rocket science (laughs) But uh, yeah, just uh, especially as a kid reading the book, so you want to be you want to be grounded in this universe, like you want to exist in it, and and anything that kind of makes it feel a little bit more tangible, like this, like yeah. explaining what Red Dwarf is, why it's like it is, and and everything is like some of the cool. It's like it's like watching Lost and, and wanting to know about the island, like it's the same thing. You want to know about the ship, like how does it work? What does yeah. it look like? What are the nooks and crannies like? Meanwhile, I really sympathise with Rimmer in this section where he's yeah. he he wants he's just ranting about why don't they just build a big red button that you can just press it like how expensive could it be, how difficult could it be? And then Crichton goes into great detail about how difficult it could be it would be and why they'd never do that. The reason they haven't done it is because of the reason why it's not there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But if I was Rimmer, that would really annoy me. If like sometimes you just want to have a rant, and sometimes you just want to be pissed off and shout, and you don't need someone go. Well, actually, it's it's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> just let me have my fucking moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, international debris says on this that uh, Rimmer's attitude towards the lack of start button is like debating politics with idiots on social media. So <laughs> well, it's not exactly like you. <laughs> but I guess that's the other side of it is that. Um, 
people just want to vent without recourse or without yeah there's, there's the venting without recourse which is one part of it but there's a different part of it which is the assumption that and i don't think rim is doing this actually so i think maybe this is a, a misrepresentation from international debris but um there's this the sort of person that assumes they know everything about it and ian you would have had this with people assuming they know how telly works like yeah. god it's ridiculous that there's so many repeats at the moment and best ofs like you know why yes. can't they just do this 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 and this and this and like uh, yeah specifically this summer and like the last few months yeah. you've <laughs> comments saying why are you showing repeats and best ofs well why do you think we're showing best ofs? we can't make new ones yeah. <laughs> why is there no but, audience yeah, from... in this show <laughs> god reminds me of uh, queuing to get into aldi in mid-april and a guy behind me came right up to me and said, uh, why are we queuing to get into the supermarket? <laughs> uh, Had he just woken up from a coma? <laughs> yeah, just, what, what year, year is, is it? it? <laughs> <laughs> Gone straight to Aldi. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose from Crichton's point of view then, it's like he's trying to rationally explain logic to people that just aren't listening. So it would be like Crichton's talking to an anti-vaxxer or yeah. a, like <laughs> an a anti-mask, anti-mask yeah. brigade. I guess, yeah, I guess like, that's the uncharitable way of looking at it. Because like what you said about just wanting a moan and the last thing you want when you're having a moan is for someone to be reasonable. It's like, yeah. you, know, with, with, you know, with your partner, if, you know, you know they're, they're really pissed off about something, like the last thing you want to say is, well, why don't you do this? I'm like yeah. that with life. I, I do that all the time. Like I'm just like, why can't we just not need money? Why can't we? Why? It's easy, right? Uh, it's well, so Danny, easy. I think, not I think to... you find that um, if we took money away, there would be uh, chaos, and it really wouldn't work very well at all. I don't think you've thought about this very well. Oh fuck you! <laughs> I do exactly that, where you just get unreasonably simplistic and, and reductive about something. It's like you don't realise that you know there's, you know, it's much more complicated than than you you that, want it to be. Yeah. That is ninety percent of my podcast persona. <laughs> <laughs> it's like why, like why, why the hypnotist exists? Like, what's the fucking point? <laughs> what is it, you hypnotist? I don't know. That's the thing. I don't really know. There, there was an incident. You just can't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> you forget about it every time someone clicks their fingers. <laughs> After that, Rimmer then continues his scutter side, <laughs> like in the previous novel. The two rimmers between them crushed half the scutters, and of and of the scutters that are left, Rimmer wipes the rest of them out. Pretty much all of them Do, at this stage. Does anyone else get these incidents completely like muddled up in their mind and think that think that the thin because the thin sheet of metal is such a a strong mental image, and I yeah. always place it in the first book uh, as an accident that happens with the two. But what happens in that is that the ship gets yeah. In both yeah. instances, stuff gets dropped on them. Yeah, I think it's a crane them. that comes down, isn't it? On the, it's a crane. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're flattened on both occasions, <laughs> but with, with this being a piston, and like the force. I just love the immediacy of the problem. That's the, yeah. so what gets to me is that how funny that would look in an episode where you literally oh, yeah. walk past and then you just hear this thudum and then you go back and there's just nothing there and he just looks <laughs> and it's just this perfect almost like cartoon like there's no oil you can imagine yeah it's comedy of the audience being being ahead of the character yes yeah exactly yeah. that yeah the the knowing and the you, knowing you can the... imagine what that thin sheet of metal looks like as well <laughs> it'll be it would be mostly silver, but with bits of blue. Bits and of you'd black. Just, like, see, <laughs> yeah. You'd see a flattened claw at the top. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would be such a good bit of a show to have that little... like It's almost like slapstick, but it just would work so well in an episode. This is also quite terrifying, 
part of the of the book really because like who who hasn't ever had that a horrible sinking feeling that you know Rimmer would have had when he realizes how much he's fucked up. Like you know that you know when oh, you yeah. fucked up so bad that your your face tingles and is incredibly <laughs> hot. And you feel you just, just like, immediately feel sick. You feel sick and everything is like on fire in your brain and, and you just think I like And you know it can't be fixed. Oh, like this is permanent. Yeah, fucked. this is like I'm, you know this is something I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to like go cap in hand to someone and explain what I've just done. Oh my god. Cap in hand. <laughs> but I really like how in the prose it says Rimmer made his mistake. And it's just as simple as that Rimmer made his mistake. Mm. And like it just implying that that's inevitable. Like there is gonna be a mistake. Yeah. Like Rimmer's do Rimmer's doing a thing that it's mandatory that there's a mistake because it's Rimmer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's also so familiar with this sensation. Yeah, it's just that's just. He's got a top five. He's like, oh, this again. Oh, this old chestnut. Dave actually says uh, on a similar point to me that everyone can empathise with that sudden panicky, oh shit feeling. That you can easily forgive it being a bit of a reprise from Nova Five stuff, and I can also forgive it for being a bit of a reprise from Nova Five stuff. In that, I do think this is a better version of that, just because of it. it's got a much stronger kind of mental image attached to it. The, the, the sheet, the, the the sheet of metal being part of like the slow realization as well. It's just like, no, oh, I don't remember the sheet metal being here. And also, Piston Five has got the exact same one. You know, like yeah. it's, it's very, very well, well. Um, it's so good. Yeah, well done. Also, it's more interesting. Just you making a mistake, rather than it be the culmination of arguing with yourself, and it being part of that slightly unreal situation. This is a very relatable situation by comparison. Yeah, yeah, we've all pressed the wrong button at times. It just normally it doesn't end with the complete destruction of a workforce. Yeah, no. <laughs> Unless you worked at Chernobyl in the eighties. Oh my god. Therefore, they have no option but to abandon ship. And this is like this is a short chapter. Um, a short part of the book. There's only eight chapters in it. But this is the end of chapter three. It's got to the point where, okay, they've woken up from better than life. Uh, they've discovered Holly's off and the engines are dead. They've discovered a planet is on the way. Now they've got no option to abandon ship. It's so fast-paced, everything that happens here. And we really we really needed this because <clears throat> the, the better than life stuff is great. It's just that it's, by its nature, it's slow going. Yeah. Um, there, there can't be a lot of things all happening at once, apart from like towards the end where everything starts to collapse and a lot of things happen quickly. But like when we're back on the the ship, it's almost like oh we're like you know we're back in our comfy trousers, <laughs> and um, and they, they Rob and Doug are back in their rhythm of of episodes they're writing and that speed at which things happen on board the ship and you know it's like it's everything feels so familiar and you know fast paced and full of ideas the difference being that all the better than life stuff wasn't actually real it didn't happen mm. and once it's over is like well it occurred to me when i was reading that, that recap at the start of like i'm recapping stuff but ultimately all that you really need to know is they left better than life yeah all the stuff about Trixie Labouche and escaping and destroying Bedford Falls isn't actually important. No, no. At this stage, the, the from only a plot thing point I'd of argue view, with it is, is from a character point of view. Is Rimmer's changed? I think is that's the really the only character. The Rimmer's changed, and the cat and uh, Listera are, are like mortally ill for a couple of pages before suddenly they're, they're absolutely fine. And um, it's not really explicitly mentioned, but I think I think Rimmer comes out of it. It's like we said in the last episode, it's that he's the only one that really went on a journey that was mm. that was gonna permanently change him for the better. And I think we are seeing that here subtly. 
that is true. Yeah, and there are points where he, he talks about like normally when he's got bad news, he wants to gloat, and it's it's partly the fact that this news is so bad that he doesn't want to talk about it. Um, but and also partly that he's changed. Well, that's kind of relatable as well, but it's not like I, I don't like to gloat about bad news. But um, there's a natural human thing to share bad news and to yeah and to want to pass it on and yeah, yeah um, to lighten your own load. I think maybe he's been a bit unfair on himself, and he's interpreting that desire as a, as something that's a, a shitty part of him. And he's like, he's just assuming, oh, I love it when you know when actually. Well, I think he like, goes a bit beyond the norm with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. There's there's a line about. He enjoys watching people's faces drop. Yeah, okay. That's the enormity thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, on one level, yes, but he he rimmers it up and has to take it too far. Yeah, a bit too far. Yeah. <laughs> on this sort of uh, subject, there's a comment from Evil Morwen who says uh, the novels keep having long spans of time occur in pages, and the crew tweet between crises and don't appear to have gaps of status quo. Does this actually work from a story and character perspective? And yeah, it is. It is very fast-paced. Mm. It's it's relentless. The fact that there's just one thing happening after the other. It doesn't communicate the gaps of time particularly, and maybe maybe that's because that it, at the end of the day, it's not really important. But um, I would have assumed reading it that everything is happening pretty quickly, um, and that there isn't the big gap of recovery time that we would expect. Well, there there is some recovery time. Because it says it's been a few weeks. I think maybe six weeks. I've got oh, in my okay, head that right, yeah. they'd they'd stayed in the medisuits. Just as they've been cooped up in the MU for the best part of three weeks. Oh, three weeks. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. Initially, Crichton said it would take a couple of months. But that was him being cautious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There's a few weeks between them coming out of Better Than Life and having to abandon ship, which we don't really see much of. I think was even Morwin's point there. Mm. The there's only little bits of of normality. In fact, there's one bit of normality which is um, the Flintstones conversation from backwards is uh, is transposed into them in their in their recovery mode mm. but it says so I made a note that um, they'd been watching 90 hours worth of Flintstones <laughs> and I was wondering whether they've just got like one tape or one disc of of a few episodes that they're watching over and over again or if they're like box setting it and they've binged the entire series uh, so I looked it up, and the original series of uh, the Flintstones equates to about seventy hours. Uh, so there maybe they've done a complete run through, and then and they're starting start again. again. Yeah. Or there's like spin-offs and different versions, like the films and stuff like that. So maybe they're just having a work through the complete Flintstones. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> the entire Hanna Barbera cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah. Or they have just got one home VHS release, so they got three episodes <laughs> over and over. Again. Which is like. For for us at various points, and I imagine for a lot of people listening, how we experienced Red Dwarf at one stage yes. in our lives, like in not either a video or a couple of videos that you just watch over and over again. Yeah, I like my grandma had one Markham and Wise VHS, and I just watched that to death. I didn't have access to any of the Markham and Wise. I was obsessed with this particular one. Clem mentions uh, about Chapter 4, says, Cat being a Flintstones fan is a nice little callback to Infinity where they discover the Cat City and find the video in the VHS. VTR, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. So Cat being a Flintstones fan was actually a callback in the TV show first and then it was called back again. <laughs> yeah. in the... Well, maybe it's Cat that gets Lister into the Flintstones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the dialogue is slightly different. In Backwards, it's he asks Cat if he's seen the Flintstones. So that can't be the same universe where Lister knows that he's, <laughs> that he's a Flintstone. Does he? I thought they were watching the Flintstones. 
No, he says, Cat, you ever seen the Flintstones? Oh, Cat yeah. goes, Sure. Yeah, they, they don't. I, so they're watching something they're watching else. it, but they're, they're not. I, don't, I think they're just watching something else and they're just bored and talking about. They're, watching, they're actually watching the Jetsons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Flintstones? It's much better than this shit. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with the Jetsons. To be clear, I like the Jetsons. I was just, yeah. Good. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Just going back to Evil Morwen, um, it also said. They're thinking particularly of the incident where Cat and Lister literally rip themselves from their IVs and, and, and go off. It is it kind of undercuts um how serious their condition was after Better Than Life, the mm. fact that they are able to leave their their medi suits in the sick bay after three weeks when it was supposed to take months and then it's never really a problem again. Yeah. And if, I think this is the start of I, I want to say problem, but it probably might not be a problem or just a facet of the novels that carry on from now right until the end of the two individual books as well, is that yep. they're really in a rush to get the plot done. If you, Or not done, but like they're in a rush for the next plot plot beat, and there's no... There is no status quo anymore from this point until the end. Like, there's no breathing room or anything that we meaningfully get. It's just like, okay, this has to happen, this has to happen. It's packed and it's really cool. But, yeah, we don't get the same comfiness of the TV show. Which also means there's no time to explore the impact that these events are having on our characters Mm -hmm. to as great a degree as, like... In comparison, Infinity seems quite... Uh, chilled, yeah. lazily, like chilled, pace-wise, because every time anything big happens in Infinity, and that like includes the complete destruction of the human race, there there is enough time for Lister to sit down, and we spend a bit of time in Lister's head and and figure out what he thinks about it. Yeah, but here it's yeah, things get kind of forgotten. There's no continuity for the characters even really, and you kind of expected to forget about life-changing things that have happened to the characters pretty quickly and that yeah. will become a much bigger thing <laughs> um, yes especially in backwards <laughs> in two novels time. yeah, yeah. Um, i mean even this i mean the, the cat and lister will, would have been in terrible shape when when the events of of yeah. uh, you know of the, the the planet potting and everything was happening um at this point it's just like you need to forget about that now that's inconvenient for us as storytellers. It needs to go, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, it's just something you have to take into account. There's only like one mention of the fact of like BTL being a, a side effect or having effects on him after the fact. Is like Lister was used to just getting what he wants when he wanted it by default, mm. and now he has to actually like make the thing happen. Yeah. And it's the one time outside of the BTL that's ever mentioned, and then the side effects of being in BTL just completely washed away and then you never you know, that's kind of dealt with it's, like, it's oh, a little bit inconsistent as well because his fantasy was that he had he had to have a simple oh he was having a simple life where presumably he'd have to but even then the game was still providing for him yeah, in a way that he you know what i mean it's like even at a short small level i'd have thought that there'd have been some level of you know asking yeah, you for, for him in better than life working in the uh, kebab emporium is is kind of like a leisure pursuit yeah, he's like he ma- he makes a tiny amount of money every week, and it's the game that makes it possible for him to live off that money and therefore not have any stress. Yeah, yeah. about you know, providing for his family or anything. His fantasy is clearly just to be a normal person. Yeah, <laughs> because he's spent so long, like from waking up a mimus to now, um, all he wants is just normality. He doesn't want to be. I mean, this is going over stuff from previous ones. One other thing that uh, that we get from in terms of mental side effects for Lister is him being depressed that he's now twenty seven. Fuck and man! I, 
<laughs> I remember that feeling of being in your late twenties and thinking you were old. Yeah. <laughs> It'll pass. <laughs> yeah, it, it will be replaced with thinking you're in your late. Uh, you, you're getting old because you're approaching forty. You're getting replaced by thinking, "Shit, I'm almost 50 <laughs> There's nothing quite like hearing the phrase. He'll be practically senile. He'd be thirty. Was too depressing for words as a thirty-six-year-old going, "Ah, fuck." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as we as we climb up the stairs to a massive door called Forty, um, but yeah, it does it does capture that. And got, how how old would have been Robin Doug at this point? Um, not far uh, off that. They'd be early thirties, probably. Right? Yeah, well, I'd I'd say probably about our age now, about our age now. <laughs> mid to late thirties. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. I mean, they've arguably achieved more than we have by, by this age. <laughs> Yeah, but then, then like you know, they didn't make a fan site for eighteen years, though, did they? <laughs> well, exactly. Yes. <laughs> now is not the time to have an existential crisis. Now is not the time to have an existential crisis. <laughs> Where's their Blade Runner fan site, eh? <laughs> <laughs> the next um, episode commentary is the time to have an existential crisis. <laughs> so look out for that in your podcast feed in the next couple of weeks. But no, in the meantime, um, more white hole plays out, basically. Or proto Whitehall. Proto Whitehall. They they leg it to the drive room and find that it's full of um, computer printouts. It's full of paper. Like, spewing. It's all made of paper. <laughs> <laughs> printouts spewing from racks and racks of printers. Like it's implied to be dot matrix yeah, type. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I heard. Computer paper that comes out. Eighties <laughs> uh, retrofuturism is the best retrofuturism. Fight. <laughs> But then I thought, obviously, that's wrong. Like, that wouldn't be how data is delivered no. <laughs> three million years in the future. Uh, but then I thought in the TV series, in White Hole, um, Holly produces a computer slug, um, which isn't a thing, but it's <laughs> it's just like it's a, a mini little... disc. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it looks <laughs> like, like a USB card. drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. an yeah. SD card, yeah. It's, it's a bit of, you know, it's a bit of physical storage that pops out, and then they put that into the Navicom. And that's much more realistic of what would occur yeah. over the next 20 odd years maybe it's, it was it was the thing of like showing a lot of data all at once was you need to print it out because uh, no one could conceive of 4k monitors oh yeah that thing of like because it's a substantial amount of data it needs to feel physically substantial yeah it, need, it needs to be a chaotic amount of data somehow yeah and it's chaotic because Whereas it's a more realistic depiction you know yeah it would be it would be a, a very small uh hard drive i just love it though it's like it is like the sub i mean i don't know if there's dot matrix printers on submarines or was but it feels like it gives you that kind of physical like there's that feeling that you're on a you're on a rig or you know you're in, you're in somewhere kind yeah. of dangerous and that you have to rely on outdated technology there's, there's always that thing about um, nuclear substations using floppy disks still yeah like there's still that whole thing of you know the the technology's not broken therefore don't fix it or don't Windows try to change 3. it. Windows 3.1 presumably yeah. is still used in a lot of terrifying places in the yeah. in the world. But um, in a closed system, it's fine. Yeah. What's interesting actually is that dot matrix printers would have been um, past it in the uh, even in the late 80s. I would have thought. Mm. I think they'd been they, they'd been superseded by that point. All I can think about is the fucking noise. <laughs> the noise in that room would have been just deafening. It's one of the best noises in the world. It is. Matrix you know, it not is. that we're old or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring in a, a couple of comments, just to another uh, 
view on what we've just been talking about, Stealing Anonides says, for many writers, the idea of a planet being on collision course with the ship could be the main story for a novel, and here it feels a little rushed. The three weeks in which Rimmer attempts to start the engines are described in a fairly perfunctory fashion. You don't get a huge sense of drama. And that is that. That is the perennial red comment about Red Dwarf, isn't it? Basically, yeah. That you know, that is its strength, its weakness, um, kind of all in one. And to continue that theme onto the next part of the book, Pete Part Three um, says that he finds uh, Whitehall a much tidier way of telling this type of story than she rides. Uh, the imminent threat being colliding with the planet here rather than the time dilation. I'm willing to just about accept that Holly hadn't plotted a course in advance to avoid such ob- obvious obstacles as the planet's orbit, but playing poor with planets is just conceptually less interesting here. The aim is to change the orbit of the planets rather than to sink one into a legion of space so the pool stuff just becomes a little bit more strained. Despite Lister claiming the sun is a pocket, it doesn't quite work. If you didn't know better, you'd think this was a slightly awkward adaptation of the TV version. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe the TV script had been written before this. We don't really know. It's possible, given the timelines. I think they'd probably have had the idea idea, to do this and not yet decided which medium to do it in. Because it's an interesting one, because I don't mind so much the fact that they're not putting a planet inside a white hole or a black hole, but what bothers me is, well, not bothers me, but it, like, the black hole comes out of nowhere. Like, they would have known that mm. that was there. And it suddenly becomes a thing. Um, whereas, really, it should have been part of this threat in some way. They've got a black hole approaching them or something. like, Or they're approaching the black hole. They've been sucked yeah. towards it. And it's not a problem yet for time, but it will be. And they've also got a planet coming at them. So they need to fix both things at once. And they manage to fix the planet hitting them. But they don't fix the black hole and then everything. The way it is, yeah. it just comes out of nowhere. I mean... There is a joke in the TV marooned about <laughs> that would have maybe covered this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think what makes this part of the book stand out against the rest of the book and indeed all the other books, the difference is that when things are adapted from a TV episode, Rob and Doug have at this stage already done one brilliant version of it mm-hmm. because all the episodes that they adapt are brilliant. Uh, like obviously they are they're the peak era of, Red Dwarf. Yeah. We think they're going to be brilliant, and so any changes that they make for the novels, that there's kind of like their honed, like ultimate version. Like any little bits that they weren't happy with, they fixed. Any alterations are only going to be improvements on something that was already pretty damn good. Whereas this is more of an early draft of White Hole, and so they're still working it out. Yeah. And like there's there's a little thing that's in this section when when they all vote as to whether to go with Lister's plan or Holly's plan. Here it goes: Lister and Rimmer obviously vote for themselves. Then they go to Crichton, and then they go to Cat. And in the TV version, they go to Cat, and then they go to Crichton. And it's a small change, but the TV version is so much it just rounds it off so much better to have Crichton last. Yeah, Crichton casting the deciding vote means that obviously you expect him to go with the same plan, but his programming means he has to go with the stupid plan. That works much better as the last action that condemns them to their fate rather than giving it to the cat to do. Yeah. It's essentially a, a 52% to 48 um, win for Lister's stupid plan. <laughs> and so they have to go fully behind it, even if <laughs> yeah. the evidence suggests that A, the vote was rigged in the first place <laughs> and the decision was terrible. <laughs> Oh, by the way, Pete Part 3 also says I'm not a huge fan of White Hole, which actually invalidates everything oh, he's ever said. fuck off, Pete Part 3. 
<laughs> I mean, literally, like, how can you take a man who says that seriously? Have we skipped over chapter four? Oh, no, we haven't. That was the Flintstones. Fucking hell, we're moving along. Yeah, well, everything moves really quickly <laughs> and everything sort of overlaps. Because I was just thinking that. It's like, hey, surely we, we can't be on them actually going to do the planet botting already, but we are. Yeah. And it, it's all in Chapter 5. <laughs> they do the vote and then go and do the planet potting. Yeah. Um, and Lister getting drunk on the six cans of uh, Wicked Strength Lager. Yeah, what a brilliant and idea that, to do for a malnourished man. Yeah, that was that was another point that was made in the comments. Evil Morgan again, uh, but yeah, they set up in that bit as well that there's no food on board. Um, it's like Lister's really after he drinks all that beer. Lister's really peckish, but realizes that they haven't brought any food on board, and that is a subtle setup for what mm. comes next. Foreshadowing. But in another example of uh, this being an early draft, they have the joke of him saying, "I'm not going to mish," but then they don't have. I am not pished, which is obviously the most uh, more iconic of the two yeah. gags. <laughs> and of course, the TV—I mean, the TV show has him walking off and clattering about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> harder to put into print. Yeah. As well. that's the—I mean—that's that's where things fall down. It's like, the the things that I bump up against when they're adapting from the TV show is when they overly explain a visual gag, and we've gone over this before. Mm. And that maybe in isolation that would read absolutely fine, but so, but when you've seen it and then it's explained in prose, it always feels clunky. Yeah, but this is the tightrope that they walk, and <laughs> it's what makes these books actually really interesting. I think. And actually, I quite like the playing pool with planets bit here. Like mm-hmm. other than the fact that the the aim is different, like the um, yeah, the, the shot itself is different. Uh, from TV to uh, book, it's it feels more like um, where there's earlier bits like the Future Echoes bit, for example, in Infinity, where it is the same events playing out on TV, but you get into the characters' heads a little bit, and so you've got Lister and Rimmer both observing what's happening, um, and it's mainly in it, we're in Rimmer's head of like he's going to miss this is fucked and like it plays out over eight hours eight hour, that's the key which is yeah. a luxury that you can't have in, in TV but yeah uh, River and Lister have got eight hours to watch this happen and um, and react like before they've seen the conclusion can you imagine having the level of hubris that Lister needs to have <laughs> for this? so this is something I was thinking about when reading it you can accept that level of bravado, that that level of, ri- of ridiculousness from him in the TV show for some reason. But as soon as it's put into a book, you're reading it as saying, "No, this is madness. This is stupid. Like, how could anyone ever think that they could do this?" Um, hmm. It just like there's something about when you're when you're putting something in a book where it almost has to take an extra step to be a bit more believable. Yeah, it's because you're seeing it. From the yeah, point of view, it's told, yeah, it's the point of view from which you're seeing. Like, obviously, we have the a the performance and like the charm of Craig as Lister, yeah, um, helps to get it across. But also the fact that we're seeing the events play out, it's more easy to get swept up in Lister's point mm-hmm. of view. Whereas here, you you're slightly detached because you're reading a report of what happens rather than living what happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You talk about his hubris. It does massively bite him on the arse because here, him doing the trick shot is actually what causes the planet to crash into Starbuck in the end. True. If the trick shot was uh, intentional. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, either way, either the fact that he did the trick shot because it was like, oh, he was, shit, it was, yeah. or the fact that he took on the the entire thing in the first place from Holly. Uh, but yeah, it's the fact that one of the other planets that he knocks out of orbit, he doesn't take into account and he careers into them. Yeah. And I think they they use the pool analogy is that he's gone in off, or like he'd accidentally sunk the cue ball. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's Lister's fault that they crash here and have marooned happen. <laughs> oh, that reminds me as well as the the build up to them leaving in Starbug, and the cat has a conversation with him saying, "I'm sorry, I can't come. I wasn't in marooned, and I'll mess up the dynamic." A <laughs> 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 little bit clunky, but uh, <laughs> forgivable. Well, it's a decent joke because it's like, yeah, it, it it fits in with the character. It's like. He's staying on Red Dwarf because if it all goes wrong, the people on Starbug will die 20 minutes earlier than the yeah, people Yeah, that's right. You know, it is a good joke, yeah. You can see the plot gears working for yeah. that particular um, thing. But then, yeah, the next chapter is pretty much marooned. Marooned in, like, a five-minute mode. It's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, sort of, it sort of starts and ends very quickly. Marooned light. Dave points out it's marooned, but in about eight pages. If there's one episode of the TV show that you'd think could be mined for all it's worth in a novel, it's this one. So it's weird that it's over so quickly. Yeah, 100%. But what I found remarkable looking back at it was how little of the dialogue has changed like at all. Mm. Because in all the previous bits, there's small, subtle changes. And if even if the dialogue itself doesn't change, there's usually a lot of uh, elaboration around um, you know, the their internal monologues that go alongside it but here it's just they're so confident in the material and rightly so yeah. it's the best dialogue they've ever written sure they just put it in wholesale and the only there's only a few extra bits um that are added in and they're all told in prose rather than direct speech it's all reported speech and so it's like they wanted to keep the maroon dialogue pure and it is, it is it's the best of marooned basically mm, yeah <laughs> it's like a mini version what is interesting though is that because it's not something I'd thought about. I didn't realize that in the book it's issue. It's it's sort of inferred that Rimmer is lying about how he lost his virginity, and I was assuming yeah. in, the, oh, yeah. in the show that was actually one hundred percent what happened. But in the book, it's inferred that actually this is the closest he ever got well, to it, it without actually ever happening. Hmm. It's explicit in the book that he's lying. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it says that the real in the TV version, it's a potential continuity error. Because in Thanks for the Memory, he says he had sex once, one time only, with Yvonne Magruder. Yeah. And then in Marooned, he says... Um, it, yeah, it's even if he was lying, Lister should know. <laughs> so, yeah, I, in my headcanon, he's lying in Marooned. Yeah. And um, this gives, the, gives his thought process behind that. It's like, well, he, he can't admit to the actual truth that he's only had sex once and he was, you know, in his 20s. Or whatever it is, yeah, and, that, wants, and that's he, why he so easily goes to the mis- misinterpretation of how was it and starts talking about the car instead. Yeah, <laughs> because because that's the that's what he's got real memories of. So you just naturally go back to your yeah. real memories, <laughs> and that's him like deliberately diverting the conversation away from the area where he's lying. Whereas I kind of prefer the TV show one, where it's like genuinely that is. <laughs> the pe- the most memorable part of it for him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It works on both. Oh, both not bad. Paneling, marvelous machine, marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and it's in the audiobook as well. It's it's a little bit surreal because uh, Chris is doing like an exact reading of his lines, like <laughs> exact, and um, and doing a pretty good like all all of Craig's intonations make it across into the into the thing as well. So it just kind of yeah gives it an even more kind of weird surreal feeling. It has to be said that Chris does an incredibly good Arnold Rimmer impression on those audiobooks. <laughs> yeah, he's really it is a weird thing, isn't it? It's very weird because it's almost like because it's. He, like you, you always assume that it's just his speaking voice, like it's just Chris Barry's speaking voice. But he does kind of nasal it up a bit, and it's weird how, like, how there is there is a there is a delineation between Chris's voice and Rimmer's voice, He's, and yeah. they're so subtle, but it's there. Yeah. I think in the audiobooks he exaggerates that difference. I think he hams up Rimmer slightly in the audiobooks to to make that separation. Yeah. I think if you listen if you listen to Chris's voice. Uh, audiobook Rimmer's voice and TV Rimmer's voice. TV Rimmer's voice is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, uh, I think it's closer to Chris's real voice than the exaggerated version he has to do here in order to make it clear what's a narrator and what's Rimmer. But even that is difficult to do. That's a task and, in itself. An exaggerated version that would later supplant the TV version as well. I would, I would argue, like yeah, at times. Yeah, um, yeah. Series eight. For sure. Yeah, series eight and. Modern day for a lot of the time as well, I would say. Like this is a slightly more um, amped up version of him, I guess. Well, another link between very modern Red Dwarf and this uh, that occurred to me when I was reading was uh, there's a bit where they, after Rimmer starts to uh, glitch, basically. <laughs> He starts going two D and starts going black and white, yeah. which I would love to see. I'd love like we've seen him go black and white, uh, obviously in the Promised Land, which wasn't actually the thing that I was thinking of. But <laughs> I would love to see like a two D sort of cartoon version oh, of Rimmer. No, that'd be, yeah, that's kind of an interesting because technically, like if you think of that from a sort of mathematical point of view, it's like the amount of power you would save by making something that was three D something two dimensional is kind of cubed, like a cube root. Of it because yeah, it's it like you know you you when you you double the size of something that is three D you are basically squaring the volume of it so it's like the the amount of power you like a two dimensional shape how would it look from the back no, this is what thing, my brain it? does yeah. it's like what would it happen how would you what, if you look down the side of Rimmer would it just be a straight line would it just what would it look like it's like you just <laughs> my mind boggles at how that would look in well, my like head. a two D a two D tree in like a, a racing game is always just facing the camera because you have only got one camera yeah. but in real <laughs> life you've got multiple cameras so you said like actually having him as a cube. Four flat planes and just presenting him like that would actually be the way they'd have to do it because then from all angles you'd be able to see that it's Rimmer. He's just That's he's on a very cube. Cool. <laughs> so he wouldn't be two D. He would still be three D, but he would have his poly count drastically reduced to two. <laughs> <laughs> Is it two polygons in a rectangle? Yes. Yeah. Two triangles to a rectangle. In that bit, they talk about Rimmer being sensitive about being a hologram mm. and mm. like how Lister and Rimmer have an understanding between them that they don't really mention the fact that he's not a real being that's really that sweet actually. by this light being. And that crops up in the promised land. Like, yeah. Like eighteen years later. No, twenty eight years later. A lot of years later. So many, many years. Um, yeah, Doug. I mean, God, we, one of the main things we've kind of stumbled upon here is that that Doug is definitely either going over old thoughts, old ideas, or he's 
going over this old material and and like, I wonder if Doug's reread the novels yeah. in the last couple of years. And there's a lot of things, and it's all to the all to the the benefit of the yeah. newer newer shows that some of these ideas have been revisited and repurposed because. Um, no, yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not that he's reusing ideas. It's it's he's revisiting themes. Themes, yeah, yeah. He's he's picking up on things that are left dangling in the novels that haven't really been expanded upon since, and and it's it's character beats yeah. really. Can you imagine him reading his old stuff and just thinking, "You fucking young idiot," throwing out all of these ideas, <laughs> <laughs> and just tossing them off. <laughs> is it enough for like, another twelve feature length specials? Yeah, exactly. I hope that is the case because I like that idea. I like the idea of Doug, if ever he'd go back yeah. and look at his old stuff. Why can't he just create a button, right? And he presses the button and it makes another special. <laughs> it must be like reading someone else's work at this stage. Yeah. Unless he's been rereading it periodically since. If you like picked up something that you'd written thirty years ago. Yeah. It must be it must be like reading something else. So there must be things that inspire him in that that fire off ideas that are occurring to him as new that he'd kind of parked in the late 80s early 90s I could listen to a podcast that we recorded a week ago that Danny has now finished editing and sends to me and I'm like fuck that was that was quite a you know, that, that was a good thing that I said that I forgot that I ever said it. <laughs> or that was a stupid thing that I said that I completely forgot that I ever said yeah. it. You know, it's like it only takes I a week I, for things to exit my head. So. I don't think I've ever listened to a podcast back and thought that was a good thing that Capsie said. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 30 years. Like, I mean, for a start, that's a very brave thing for anyone to do. Which we something. don't know that he's actually done. No, yeah. <laughs> but but can, God, can you imagine, like, I mean, I would never really read back old articles I've, I've written because all of them are terribly embarrassing. I, mm. But anyway, but yeah, yeah, it's an assumption that he's either just he's connected with that mindset that he had at the time, or he's just he's been rereading the books or like listening to yeah. the audiobooks. Maybe should ask him. So then, yeah, we get into the bit where, appropriately enough, time dilation starts to become a thing. Um, and yeah as Dave points out it's really reminiscent to um, the Doctor Who episode World Enough and Time which was uh, 2016 2017 Doctor Dwarf moment Moffat is 100% a dwarf fan to a non-Hoovian you might have to explain that to me World Enough and Time uh, the last uh, uh, episode of series 10 or one of the last parts of the two-parter of series 10 of Doctor Who Capaldi's last full series um Basically, it's a Cyberman origin story. Um, again, <laughs> the Cybermen have had several origin stories at this stage. But the Doctor and um, the Master and um, Bill and Matt Lucas beam onto a spaceship where at one end of the spaceship, time is running in one at one speed, and at the other end, it's uh, running much slower uh, because of a black hole, uh, which they later discover. Yeah. And so... Bill, the companion, gets transported to one end of the ship, um, and by the time the Doctor gets to her, um, several, like possibly hundreds of years have passed, and she's been turned into a Cyberman. Uh, whereas for the Doctor, it's minutes. It's a really effective horror setup. Like anything where you suddenly have no control over the passage of time is terrifying. Yeah. One one of the notes I've made is that something that the books do is that it takes a lot of the ideas from the TV show. But it tends to twist them or like repurpose them as tragedy. Mm. Like better than life is a whole different beast. It's it's a 
you know, it's very har- harrowing, really, and it certainly ends up that way. And and then now Whitehall and Marooned has have gone from like you know, thirty minute knockabouts each, really, where everything's fine in the end, to like, I mean, you know, no spoilers, but it's a, a it's a pretty key moment in Lister's life, and um, yeah. they're on the they're on the ship and they're they're on this planet and rather than just they're just waiting for the cat and Crichton to come and rescue them they're like why aren't the cat and Crichton, why why aren't they answering these these SOSs it doesn't make any sense red dwarf's just there why isn't they answering and then when they do finally get something come through it's so distorted and spooky and like ununderstandable mm-hmm. we know it's because of time dilation but it's like why is Crichton frozen why is his voice so low you know it's just so creepy yeah and then yeah, Rimmer glitching and being transported back. Yeah, and having to do that really slowly. <clears throat> and meanwhile, <laughs> we'll get back to the time dilation bit because that's what kind of ends this section. <laughs> but they, um, after Rimmer is beamed off, Lister's left on his own, um, and then the Ice Age starts melting around him. Yeah, and then again, it's just like how much more shit can be piled on Lister. <laughs> Recently rescued from a deadly computer game, severely emaciated, starving to death and then this planetoid. And now and so he decides to just go back to bed. Yeah. And I can completely relate to that. Right. <laughs> I had that skill as a kid. I could just in fact I probably still have it. Yeah, I could sleep through anything. I could sleep through an ice age, yeah. <laughs> There's so much packed into this bit that is just so cool. Like all the time dilation stuff, the stuff with Rimmer slowing down, um, like, yeah, the ice, the ice age ending just randomly. Uh, we don't know why at this point. Well, it's because that planet has been put into an orbit around a sun that's close. Well, to the yeah, course. of course, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. So there's nothing, there's nothing weird going on just yet. So it's sort of like almost chaos becoming order at that point. This above almost anything, I think, in the books is stuff like I would, I would have been desperate to see this on screen. At some point, maybe, hopefully, we will in some way, because it feels like this is how, like, what happens now at the end of this book. It feels like if you're going to end the show, you borrow very, very heavily off this. Oh yeah, because it's so epic. It, it, um, you know, there, there, there are reasons why it, many, many reasons why it feels like a natural end to the whole saga, and um, but, but just you know, on a purely like superficial point of view, it's like imagine Starbuck being part of like a whole mountain melting glacier, and um, you know, and then yeah. revealing what is underneath all the snow. And uh, Dave points out in the comments that uh, all the stuff with Rimmer's body telescoping down corridors, distorting, yeah. time running at different speeds, feels like it's really enhanced by the infinite budget possibilities offered by a novel. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to. It's one of those things that I struggle to visualize, though. Oh yeah. I think that's yeah. absolutely the point. Is that it's not meant to be understood by sure, yeah. It's not. It's it's non-Euclidean. It's like it just it just completely breaks all rules about what you understand about <laughs> the universe. Yeah. Because it's you know hitherto unknown territory is being near an event horizon. Is like what does actually happen? It's all theoretical. Presumably they've taken a lot of this from real theories. It'll be Doug leafing through brief history of time. Oh, okay, right. right, yeah, there we go. Yeah, so the equivalent of Doug um, asking Twitter when lemons came to... Um... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one of the ways that they get it across is, um, I noted at one point that they use telescope 
stopped. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Wim has like telescoped down and it's like O dash O dash O dash O. It's a new twist on uh, the Grant Naylor trick of using nouns as verbs, which we discussed last time. Yeah. yeah. Is that now the way they're presented on the page is also descriptive of the action. This is part of the book where they're really getting quite creative with how they're writing things down. Like all of Wimmer's slow speak is painstakingly um, written down, which is actually, it's fine to read. It's really difficult to listen to on the audiobook. <laughs> it's really bad. It's a chore. It's yeah. It's a chore to listen to on the audiobook. <laughs> but, but as a written word, it's brilliant because you can, yeah. like, your brain does all the work for you. What I like is that they actually have thought about the, the sort of syntax of how speech would would sound if it was slowed down it's like you know like consonants would be the same size they were but then it would be you know all of the vowels would be just stretched out because they're the they're this kind of they're the 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 stretchable parts of a word yeah yeah in my head when i was reading this uh this this last chapter was in my head it reminded me of what i i haven't played the game but i think it reminds me of is it super hot where basically super hot yeah yeah, so when you're moving you only everything's moving when you are so yeah. it's like that's how I imagine this to look. Is like it's only it's only working relative to you. So Time when you're moving towards it, yeah. So you're moving to. So it's not even something that you could do in a TV show because the camera would be in the wrong place. So if it was <laughs> looking at Rimmer from a third person perspective, nothing would move. It would only be Rimmer's point of view that needs to make it work. It, it just it blows my mind uh-huh. the level of complexity <laughs> required to make this visually work but in a bucket yeah. works completely fine <laughs> yeah it's a remarkable section and then yeah we end the part on a massive cliffhanger <laughs> which is good like i say it is a, it is a very short part and like the, with the fact that there's at least two episodes crammed in and a load of other stuff in between and a yeah, lot. it's all condensed yeah. into 40 pages i wonder if this section perhaps suffers a little bit from being read in isolation because the, there's bits where it doesn't quite flow and everything seems to be happening really quickly, but it's not kind of there's breakpoints these parts it, when you're reading through the book, like that's like an opportunity to go and make a cup of tea or whatever when you get to the end of a part. But you're not supposed to sit and read that and then wait two weeks before reading the next no. bit. So it's like... <laughs> Especially not here. Like um, I mean, I've, I've already battled through most of part three at this point <laughs> but only by accident yeah you know, and just because it, it does flow yeah immediately flows yeah. and the next part is so bloody good as well yeah but like it's a hell of a page turner thing of like oh yeah we've been sucked into a black hole and this is uncharted like this is the first time that the the red dwarf novels have like properly i mean it's weird to say this considering we're we're dealing with a part that that's lifting two different episodes although sorry just one different one episode but still um it is what happens after this is is starting to strike out into brand new stuff like properly properly brand new stuff and i suppose yeah that is the first time post-accident yeah this has happened like infinity massively fleshed out everything that went before the end but then after it happened yeah you're right it's, it's obviously things are different, but it's future echoes, yeah. me squared, and better than, uh, life. better than life, and Crichton. Mm. Yeah, as soon as Rimmer basically, as soon as Rimmer gets beamed back um, or recreated back in the ship, from that point on, all the stuff of the black hole, because you know it's not a white hole for a start, yeah. um, and it's a lot more dangerous than that. But you can see why they just went with a black hole here because you need to because inter- we know what that yeah, is. We, we we know more about what that is, and you can. Uh, they need to interact with it <laughs> quite directly, yeah. so it would be weird to do that with a white hole. 
and and yeah, it's like this is where things start to just be unfamiliar, um, which kind of adds to how exciting it is, really. Um, More of which next time. Yeah. Uh, but for now, let's wrap this up with some small points and small passages after this little sting of music. Right, so we've got a comment from International Debris, uh, which actually touches upon something that we've just talked about, um, but says it in a better way. So I'll just read that one out. (laughs) Something that's become obvious in this book is that unlike Infinity, the four parts aren't entirely necessary. In Infinity, the three sections are almost like individual novellas or short stories with comparatively little overlap. In this one, the whole Holly's Dead plot was dealt with in the first part, while the last few chapters are directly connected to the Garbage World section. Spoilers. It flows much better as a single book, but makes the choice of parts feel a touch more arbitrary. Mm. Which is kind of what we were saying. But yeah. more Infinity is a very considered and deliberately structured book, and it's probably the only one that is so. <laughs> yeah. Um, Milo Scat says, Rimmer has never consumed a magic mushroom, so the past events we see in Stasis League didn't happen in the book universe. Well, <laughs> I was pondering that. Yeah. In, they Possibly because of um, compliance reasons, they don't actually say in Stasis League magic mushrooms. They say freaky fungus. Ah, so, so maybe future. freaky fungus is a distinct drug. It's not the same as magic mushrooms. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, a light version I'm trying to think yeah. of it's like it, maybe it's a legal high alternative. Yeah, yeah, it's like mushrooms. salvia or something. Salvia, exactly <laughs> what I was thinking, but <laughs> didn't want to say. <laughs> I always used to misread it saliva. as saliva <laughs> and think that people were smoking saliva. A blizzard stumbled in, followed by Lister. There's some classic Grant Naylor prose here, says <laughs> International Debris, and uh, yes, that is that's up there. That's um, that is the same as the cat's smile entered the room, followed by the cat, which was in the first <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a similar note, International Debris also says the first time I read this, I remember thinking that being dored to death was a stupid way to die was the funniest thing I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> and although I'm not sure that's still true now, it's still fantastic. And yeah, I can imagine that. That's like um, that. That's the feeling you get when you're young and you uh, suddenly uh, you suddenly experience. A slightly different type of comedy, and like the the comedy of misusing words, and or you know, in this case, uh, using nouns as verbs. The first time you encounter that, I can easily imagine that feeling like, oh, this is the funniest yeah. shit I have ever encountered in my life because <laughs> it's breaking rules. Yeah, and that's basically why we all love Red Dwarf is because it gave us that when we were young. When we were too young, in most cases, to know what the what it was doing, exactly. we just knew that it was yeah, good, it was instinctive. Yeah. <laughs> It's a strange one from Dave, <laughs> this comment. The hyphen in Planet Potters makes it extra clear that Craig is mispronouncing it in the TV version and making it sound like Potters is the name of the planet, which has always bothered me. I, I have never, never had that interpretation before. Yep. Prince of the Planet Potters. <laughs> I can sort of, now that he says it... <laughs> I think it's because it's the I'm fastest on the wrong syllable. <laughs> yeah, like Red Dwarf. He's doing the dodgy emphasis deliberately. Like He's like, he's like and Prince... Like he's like he's he's, yeah. he's um I was gonna say he's ejaculating in the in the term that you know like he's you know throwing his arm yeah. in the air prince of the planet potters it's like it's he's saying it that way in order for it to scan with what he's saying yeah yeah it's yeah now that his points it out it should be planet potters 
Yeah. Like Planet Potters. Yeah, but, but it wouldn't it's, work. It's a very small difference, I'd say. Going back to Rimmer's, um, Rimmer's recreation on Red Dwarf. Yes. It's a bit problematic, not in the, not in the Twitter way, but in a... <laughs> Is uh, this cultural Marxism again, <laughs> No, it's... Like, doesn't it undercut literally every bit of peril that Rimmer has ever been under that he could just jump into a new light bee? I thought his light bee was him. Uh, and and he's what what has happened here? He's basically abandoned the light bee, his old light bee on Starbug, and been given a new one. He's been transplanted into a new one on Red Dwarf, and this is the only time this has ever been discussed as a as a, a, a possibility. In my head, it says it can switch from remote to local. Yeah, and that so, doesn't explain anything. No, that doesn't because that 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 <laughs> assumes that you're literally producing an image of Rimmer from Red Dwarf, which is insane. Oh. Yeah, but then that would undercut what they say about the light bee because the light bee has to be there with him. Yeah, that's exactly on... what, that's what I'm saying. So yeah, it doesn't yeah, make yeah. sense if that was what it is, but yeah. Well, what it says is when the signal became too faint to transmit, the hologrammatic projection unit would automatically flick from remote to local. So it's implied that he is being generated from Red Dwarf and the light bee is like a a Wi-Fi extender. Yeah, basically. I was going to say like a booster. Yeah. So he's had yeah. to. So his real light B is back on Red Dwarf, and he's he's using a he's using a portable one. His light B is permanently the portable one. It's what yeah. allows him to go further away from Red Dwarf without the hologram projection cage that we see. And thanks for the memory. If you want to blur the two, yeah, uh, it's, it's signal relay basically. I think if it's specifically if it's the signal that's the problem, um, it's not. It's not necessarily that he can decide to go back to red to beam back. It's that the signal to his light bee is deteriorated to an extent that he can no longer project from the light bee, so he blips back. It's a bit of a stretch to say that he couldn't choose to do that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's this specific situation because it's the black hole that's causing it's, it that it's... makes it. It's not something that would happen in a normal perilous situation. It's the it's the black hole preventing the signal getting through. I just wonder if it's something that Rumor just forgot about as a function. Like it could be just something that's just like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah hang on, I, do I don't even need to worry about this. I, like like it's fine. I can yeah. This is what happens when he denies to himself that he's a hologram all the time. Is he forgets yeah. what that's it he can do? Yeah, because he's like knowing that he has a means to get the fuck out of danger at <laughs> yeah. the touch of a button. He would be using that all the time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I guess this is this is a side effect of. So we've always had the two different competing ways in which Rimmer is generated. There's one way he's generated by the ship and the systems on the ship. And if he needs to leave the ship, it's a massive pain in the ass that involves um, cages. And then later on, there's the light bee, which we're we're led to believe eventually is completely independent mm. and exists in isolation and can go wherever it wants but as a side effect it is literally Rimmer it's Rimmer's physical presence therefore if it's destroyed he's dead there's no red wall yeah. backup so this is a mixture of those two ideas and because they're competing I think we've got a, a slightly slightly wonky thing but it was you know it was necessary and it's a really really cool idea that he could just be blipped out of marooned and put back on red dwarf that's that's fantastic like you can see exactly why they did that. It is what like, the comments were saying is the way that it blends those two episodes perfectly. Yeah, it, it's like this is literally a function of Rimmer's physicality <laughs> that he can transition from one story to the other. Yeah, <laughs> the click of a finger. Also, um, just as a kind of a cap on the fact that he's 
changed he's a little bit more concerned a little bit more maybe community minded with everyone is that he's desperate for someone to get back and help Lister yeah like he's really really trying and he's going to be I mean he's you know what happens next you know is going to be difficult um, because he really tried his very best <laughs> to help Lister and did all he could you tried and you failed. He should have realised, like when when try. it took him two weeks. So we've skipped over this really, but when it took him two weeks to get down to where the cat and Crichton are, mm. at that point it should have been like, it's taken me two weeks to do that. Like Lister has definitely starved to death. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but then he's 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 having to deal with quite a lot. He's probably not made the connection just yet. Yeah, fair enough. His legs are telescoping all over the shop. <laughs> I have a small small point. Um. There's a bit in this where uh, they're deciding uh, that during the conversation about playing pool with planets and um, when Holly's plan is unveiled, um, Rimmer says, well, it's certainly possible to fire a thermonuclear device into a sun and create enough of a slow flare to throw a planet out of orbit. The rest is somewhat in the realms of hypothesis. That's not a Rimmer line. No. How the fuck does Rimmer know that? Yeah. <laughs> Rimmer failed his astronavigation exam X number of times, yeah. depending on which episode you watch. Also, that that's a Crichton line, been surely. Part of the curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> the theoretical possibilities of blasting yeah. planets from their orbits using thermonuclear devices. Yeah, that's a problem where that's a line that doesn't have a doesn't have a natural home right now because Crichton isn't that character at the moment. I was going to say not at this stage. In very short shrift that would be um, a Crichton line for sure. There's a comment about that. Yeah, Dave says, I've been surprised to find I'm still reading Crichton as David Ross Crichton throughout, because we'd, we'd um, this this is Capsy again now, unquote um, <laughs> we'd, we'd kind of assumed that Crichton would end up being Robert Llewellyn in this book and I don't think that's actually how it's happened to be honest uh, but yeah he says I'm surprised still, still for reading Crichton's David Ross Crichton throughout it hasn't really got into much memorable series 3 Crichton stuff yet I guess but maybe that'll change the next section which is kind of appropriate considering that Crichton wasn't even Crichton in the TV version of um, Marooned yeah, he was, yeah. He, he was wonky as fuck he was barely in it and when yeah. he was there he was wonky yeah. yeah we haven't really explored Crichton in that much depth in this chapter um, there was a little bit in Better Than Life but we do get a little bit of fleshing out of the scutters, uh, which is which is quite early on in this part where uh, there, there is that scene between Crichton and the scutters where they basically ignore him. But they talk about uh, how scutters were never, to save money, they were never given the belief chip and so they don't believe in Silicon Heaven and so they think Crichton's a fucking idiot for believing in Silicon <laughs> Heaven. It just it adds a little bit of character to the scutters. Um, and that comes about five pages before Rimmer basically commits genocide upon the scutters <laughs> yeah. and wipes them all out. This is this is this is like yeah, like in a drama where like you know something contrived happens to make you hate someone just before they get like you know murdered yeah. or something. Um, actually, that that's an interesting point about like cheaper things. They don't bother giving them belief chips, but I, I could easily believe scutters would need to have them because they're. They're service droids. They 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 are. Yeah, they have to. I don't think it quite works. I think yeah. the cheaper they are, then the more menial the job that they're going to do, and the more necessary. And so therefore, yeah. yeah, they'd need that promise of a better life more so than yeah than a, a relatively elevated um, machine like Crichton. So, sounds a bit like uh, <laughs> sounds a bit like the working class these days. So what else is new? So what else is new? I as a side point about 
Silicon Heaven stuff. Because actually, it's it's weird, like background noise in this whole book, isn't it? Silicon Heaven. It's never really mm. grasped onto, but it's always there. But I I love the very eighties nineties idea of a piece of functionality being contained within a chip. Yeah. <laughs> um, before everything yeah. became. Um, that you have to physically add on the, like yeah. a like a Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, like a sound plug chip in, in a Commodore sixty four. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, uh, uh, they haven't got a sound chip, therefore they can't. You know, it's uh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> Again, eighties retrofuturism is the best retrofuturism. Another small point from myself is that uh, there's yet more anti-Spanish racism in this book, um, where Lister's talking about the worst smells, and one of which is Spanish perfume. Following on from Infinity, where he talks about Spanish coffee and Spanish cigarettes being terrible, uh, which in itself follows on from Asso's Asso Spanish Detective. Yeah. The fuck is the, that? The sketch in uh, in Son of Cliche. Rob and Doug just don't like the Spanish. Was there some sort of like kind of Spanish version of Red Fear or something in the eighties? <laughs> red, not red Fear. What's it called? Red Panic was it? Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that is really strange. They got to be in their bonnet about certain things. <laughs> Maybe a Spanish guy called him a cunt one day. Not really got him. <laughs> El Cunto, I El think Cunto. they might have said. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> or La Cunta, maybe. <laughs> la Cunta. <laughs> a la 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 Cunta. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Spanish racism is uh, it's terrible. terrible. <laughs> they should do something about it if they weren't so fucking lazy and slippery, <laughs> So I think that just about wraps up our small points on that slightly dodgy note. Uh, but we'll leave the last one to Dave, who summarises the whole chapter for us as uh, Body Horror, Whitehall, Rimmer Fails, Flintstones, Planet Potters, Maroon, Time Dilation, Long Post, Sorry Bye. Yeah. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> Body yeah. Horror. With you. White yeah. Hole. Right. Rimmer Fails. Classic. Flintstones. Yeah. Planet Potters. Oh, sorry, Planet Potters. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Marooned. Yeah. Time dilation. Ah. Uh-huh. Long post. Got you. Sorry. Yeah. Bye. Ed. All that remains, having fingered through our readers' <laughs> small points, is to open up our small passages, um, where we we read our own memorable parts of the book for your oral pleasure. So chronologically, uh, this time around, it's my small passage first, uh, which is something that we talked about in the uh, in the main chat. Rimmer's mistake. Naturally, Rimmer wanted to complete his half of the task before Crichton, so he had the scutters switch themselves up to maximum so they could triple their speed. The little engines whined and screamed as they raced in and out of the towers, checking the spark chamber relays were open. After each tower had been primed, its 8,000 ton piston head had to be tested. Rimmer thought the 20 scutters that made up his A section were in piston tower 137 when he cleared piston tower 136 for testing. He listened as the piston head thundered down, then nodded to his secretary scutter to take the check sheet and moved on to piston tower 138. For some reason, A section was missing. Of course, it must already be on to the next tower. He ordered 137 to be tested and moved hurriedly along. He waited. He couldn't believe it. Now B section was missing too. He searched all the towers from 150 back down and still couldn't find a single scutter. It didn't make sense. Where could they be? Finally, he walked into tower 137 and spotted a wafer-thin layer of sheet metal covering the piston tower's floor. He'd never noticed it before, but there was another one in 136. It was a very familiar feeling for Rimmer. 
the horrible slow dawning, the internal denials, the frantic mental search for someone else to blame, the gradual acceptance that, once again, he'd done something so unspeakably asinine it would live with him for the rest of his days, lurking in the horror pit of his mind, along with nine or ten other monstrous ineptitudes that screamed and railed there, never allowing him to forget them. Jesus. Funny and grim at the same time. It just seems <laughs> just... so. It's just they, they write Rimmer so well. Like yeah. Rimmer is just such a fucked up human being. <laughs> He's, he is all of us. The sections where you're in his head are often the most interesting because it's such a weird head. Yeah, it's just again you 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 know how like it feels very familiar like again you're saying it's a familiar feeling from rumor it's like for the reader it's a very familiar feeling like you've seen this before <laughs> yeah it's like you've, you've you've been through this kind of thought process with rumor in the past yeah it's very well rounded it's so good i think capsi's passage is the next to open <laughs> as it creaks open in front of your astonished face suddenly the communications console crackled into life the screen resolved itself into a clear picture and Crichton was talking to them, but something was wrong with the sound. All they could hear was a dull, resonant bass throb, a slow-motion growl. Lister played with the frequency controls but couldn't improve the sound reception. The transmission never varied, Crichton's expression never appeared to change, and the deep, undulating grunt from the speakers never relented. They checked the video link but could find nothing wrong. Same with the speakers, they were functioning perfectly. Then, something happened to Rimmer. It was hardly noticeable at first, but after a couple of hours it was plain that he'd started slowing down. There was a definite time lag in his responses to Lister. Talking to him was like conducting a transatlantic phone conversation with a bad connection. His light image started to corrupt. Occasionally he would flash and become two-dimensional, or lose all colour. Lister didn't mention it at first. It seemed rude somehow. Rimmer had always been extremely sensitive about his status as a hologram. He hated to be reminded that his image was projected from a minute light bee, or from Red Dwarf, it's not exactly clear, which hovered in his centre and from time to time went wrong. Frequently in the past he'd suffered glitches, becoming slightly transparent or turning a strange shade of blue. On one occasion his legs had become separated from the rest of his body and spent the morning wandering aimlessly around the ship, leaving his torso shaking its fist in fury. Pause at that point, because that's something that yeah, I meant to mention in the main chat. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like, it's a an echo of um, Queeg, but yeah. done in a slightly different way. It's like, it's implied that that's just a thing that happens from time to time. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, my bloody legs have gone again. As a rule, Lister never remarked on these signal failings, and with hours they were generally put right. But this was different. Rimmer's voice had dropped two octaves, and trying to hold a conversation with him was now like talking person to person with Paul Robeson on Mars. Or dope. Yeah, why the, fu- why the <laughs> fuck? Rimmer, what's happening? A two minute pause, then. Something must be wrong with your signal from the ship. The remote hologrammatic relay is not getting through properly. conversation that followed was brief in content but took the best part of half a day to complete. The essence of the dialogue was that the signal from the ship that projected Rimmer's image was slowing down and weakening. When the signal became too faint to transmit, the hologrammatic projection unit would automatically flick from remote to local and Rimmer would be regenerated, fully functional, back on board Red Dwarf. Well that's good. You can find out what's keeping them. Tell them where I am. Rimmer nodded curtly. It took five minutes. The transmission grew weaker. Interference lines split up Rimmer's image for minutes on end. 
Rimmer blipped off and reformed in the hologrammatic generation chamber aboard Red Dwarf. And finally, show us your passage, Danny. Something was wrong with time. Rimmer stepped out of the regeneration booth into the long corridor of the hologram projection suite. The banks of machinery that lined the half-mile wall rippled and undulated as if light itself were bending. To Rimmer's right, at the far end of the suite, a glass water cooler toppled free of its housing and appeared to be defying gravity, suspended halfway between the countertop and the floor. He lurched right and started walking towards it. This turned out to be a mistake. He raised his left leg and thrust it forward. It telescoped out 40 feet down the room. Instinctively, he flicked out his right leg to retain his balance, but his right leg bolted down the room, overtaking his left. He stopped and looked at his position. His head and torso appeared to be barely two feet off the ground, while his right leg was 80 feet down the room, and his left leg was still 40. He stayed perfectly still and wondered what to do. The water cooler had moved a few inches close to the floor. He leant forward, and his neck elongated out of his shoulders so it looked like a bipedal brontosaurus and zoomed off down the room. Or a giraffe. <laughs> he panicked and started to chase after his neck. Suddenly, he was aware that something was overtaking him at speed. It was his right leg. Once again, it stretched yards in front of him, then a flash of car gave from the other side, and his other leg zoomed out to join it. He took three more rubbery steps, until a bout of nausea sort of forced him to stop. The water cooler was definitely moving. The closer Rimmer got, the faster it moved. So yeah, it's, it's, it, for me, it's like it's those sections where there's such an impossible thing going on, but there's just... Like the description of it is so you totally get it. Like you can visualize yeah. it in your head. This kind of weird impossible geometry and you know, like like topology going a bit weird and like you overtaking yourself. Like, like it, and I think someone even mentioned about this in the uh in the comments about it being uh similar like Infinity where it's like a, a good nod to when uh, the break the light barrier and Lister yeah. is looking at the back of his own head and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> Which apparently is what, if you were inside a black hole, or if you, you know, theoretically, if you were to enter a black hole, is the kind of thing that would happen is that light would bend around to the point where you would see the back of the thing that's in front of you. So it's like, you know, it's, it gets really bizarre and stuff just stops making proper, you know, real actual sense. But it's, uh, yeah, I just, I just like the fact that they seem to have nailed that kind of confusion and the, how it would feel and how it would, you know, just completely mess with your head. They're yeah. doing an amazing job of it. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that st- sticks with you and keeps you thinking. It's, yeah. Uh, it's like the idea of a clock being like racing and then the, the slower you get towards it, the more it slows down <clears> until <throat> so you're relatively close to it and therefore it's running normally. But it's relativity. It's nothing. There's nothing wrong with any point in that ship. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's your yeah. point of view that makes the difference. So it's, just, it's really cool. It's such a subjective thing. It's great. And speaking of... Um things that in isolation appear to be perfectly fine but seem to have been going on for fucking ages. That brings us to the end of the podcast. <laughs> Good segue. Good. 
but of course we will be back in a few weeks time uh, to tackle the next part of Better Than Life part 3 which is called Garbage World and if you'd like to contribute your thoughts analysis and opinions then do leave a comment on the article for this Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv it's only the real hardcore that are still there reading along and uh, commenting now which is actually quite good for us because it makes the comments easier to collate Um, so do continue to uh, keep them brief and let us know whether the point you're making is relating to a specific subchapter or is a more general or smaller point about the the whole part. But if you do want to join in, don't be discouraged. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, our, uh, <laughs> our next Dwarfcast will be the commentary for Crisis, which we'll do next. And that will also have a Waffle Men section at the end where we answer your questions or discuss topics that you suggest. Um, so do please also get in touch with those. Uh, you can either leave a comment or tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Heighten. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. And until next time, all that remains to say is uh, stay indoors again, apparently. <laughs> oh, uh, stay is that what's stay safe. Oh, I haven't checked. During the time we've been recording this podcast is when the next lockdown has been announced. I think yeah, I haven't month checked. Month-long lockdown. Cool. I'm actually calling it a lockdown as well. Uh, so uh, just for a bit of historical context this is what we decided to do with our time when that was happening Uh, so therefore the the advice remains stay indoors stay safe, keep listening to Dwarfcasts Uh, and until next time Ed bye everybody Ed bye Thank you for listening to G&T Dwarfcasts and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcasts again have a safe onward journey goodbye After a piece of dropped toast lands marmoside laid up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love Marmoslaid. <laughs> My favourite band. <laughs> Marmoslaid would all crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>